Well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Last week we introduced this great epistle by taking a flyover of the letter as a whole, and we answered four questions that, that you have to understand before you approach it. We, we looked at Paul's uh, Google Maps route overview, if you will, before we started following uh, his voice turn by turn. The four preparatory questions that we answered were, who is this letter's writer and recipients? Why was this letter written? How is it structured? And why should you study it? What does God intend you to, to get out of it? And, and in the answers, we found that Paul's voice setting speaks Greek with a Hebrew accent. It's primarily written to Gentile Christians mingled with some Jewish believers who have returned to Rome. And, and Paul's final destination in, in this letter or through this letter is, is Spain. But he's going there by way of Rome, and he takes the Romans' road to get there. The, the book of Romans is all about God and the gospel from beginning to, to end. It, it identifies the gospel, it defines the gospel, it describes the gospel, it answers questions and objections to the gospel. In fact, the, the theme of this book is the gospel of God's righteousness. It's, it's a book that covers more theology than any other New Testament letter, and it anticipates and answers the most common objections to the gospel of grace. Like, why does a person need to be saved to, to begin with? And how can God be just and also justify sinners that, that are clearly guilty? And where is Israel in God's plan? Why are there not more Jews being saved right, right now? And if salvation is all of God, can he be blamed for those who, who are not saved? And is he unjust by, by who he saves and, and, and when? And, and all of that is outlined in, in eight parts and we're going to start looking at the first part today, Paul's introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness. And then he goes into man's need for the gospel of God's righteousness, three chapters, the exclusive solution in the gospel, the, the believer's assurance because of the gospel, the chapter 5 through 8, the role of the Spirit, and then the defense of the gospel related to Israel in chapters 9 through 11, the transforming power of the gospel, chapter 12 through chapter 15, and then an example of preaching the gospel of God's righteousness in chapter 15, and then the, the doxology. If you didn't get that, you'll see that uh, again. But, but today, we'll see how Paul introduces the letter in these first seven verses. And he begins with an introduction of himself. Uh, you might think of this as Paul's LinkedIn page, or as one said it, his business card. What, what he front loads this, this letter with. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that you could say about Paul, and many details that would be very helpful. We, we noted a number of them last week, like how many epistles he has, has written, or you could talk about how Paul's uh, completed his three missionary journeys whenever he writes this letter, or how he's headed back to Jerusalem to take a, an offering to the saints, or, or about the fact that, that he writes this letter on his three-month delay, 
And during that time, he begins thinking about what's next. I've completed these three missionary journeys. And he starts thinking about he wants to preach the gospel where, where it hasn't been proclaimed, and which leads him to think of Spain where he hasn't been, which leads him to think of Rome, which is a, a natural stopover. You, you could talk about all of that. You, you could even give facts about the Apostle Paul, like, like he mentions about himself reluctantly uh, in, in, in 2 Corinthians. How he was beaten three times and, and shipwrecked four times and, and hungry and, and all of those other things. I mean, Paul is an amazing man. It would not be hard to find things to say about the, the Apostle Paul. But what does Paul say about himself? That's what we're going to see this morning. Because that's what you have here. Paul is introducing himself to the Roman believers, which is a congregation that doesn't really know him. They've heard about him. In fact, some of the things that they've heard are, are contrary things. So, so what does he say? I mean, what does Paul want this church to know? What, what is most important in his mind? What, you might think of it this way. What would you say about yourself if you had to introduce yourself to a group of people that, that didn't know you and you're sending a letter ahead of time, I mean, how would they recognize you? What, what, what do you want them to, to know? Uh, I have the, uh, I'm about to do that in, in less than a week in a, a church uh, conference in, at Founders Baptist uh, uh, next week. And you've likely been to conferences, that's what it is, where somebody gets up and gives a flowery introduction to the speaker, right? I mean, uh, the, uh, the typical list is how long he's been in ministry, how big his church is, how many initials are after his name, how many books he's written, blah, 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 whatever else they say. But from Paul's perspective, what does he think is important? How does he introduce himself? What, what are Paul's credentials to get this church to listen to 16 chapters about the gospel and then eventually support him as he goes to Spain. Well, when you think of it that way, this introduction is, is quite interesting. You see, in Paul's day, the opening of a letter would have typically been a very simple greeting, in, including a sender's name and then the recipient's name, and, and maybe something like, you know, shalom or, or, or peace. Uh, and then you would have been right into the letter. You actually have that here in verses 1 and, and, and 7. So look at verse 1. And then we'll jump down to verse 7. This would be in a, a semi-typical greeting. Verse 1, Paul, the bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, even that would have been a little bit expanded, but, but that would have been normal. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, in fact, this is the most extended introduction of all of his letters. In seven verses, he introduces this letter with 126 words. And he, he tells us about himself, about his calling, about his authority, about the gospel he preaches, and, and about his purpose. You see, in between that normal greeting of verses 1 and, and, and verses 7, uh, there's this long parenthesis in the middle, verses 2 through 6, with... And verses 2 through 6 is, let me explain what I mean section. It's, it's five verses of detail, and it's instigated whenever, whenever Paul mentions the gospel of, of God. He, he's triggered in a good way. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Oh, the gospel of God. Let me tell you about the gospel of God. And, and then he just tells us about it for, 
for the next five verses. He launches into this long parenthesis, and, and then he comes back to the greeting in verse, in, in verse 7. It's Paul's introduction to, to the church, to the believers in, in Rome, and he introduces himself as the messenger in verse 1. He, he introduces his message as the gospel in verse 2 and 3, and he introduces the gospel as all about God's Son, verses 3 through 5, and then he introduces the, the Romans as the saints of God. Or, or simply, here's who I am, here's what I preach, here's why I do it, and here's where you fit in. And the first introduction that Paul makes is, is himself. He, he introduces himself, and, and he says in verse 1, I am an own slave... I am a sent apostle, and I am a separated instrument. Look, if you would, at verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He says, I have a master who owns me, I have a mission he's given me, and I have a ministry for which he uses me, and he leads with, with his slavery. I mean, in your opinion, what's the most important thing about you, Paul? I am a slave of Jesus Christ. That's what he said. Paul had several words at, at his disposal to describe his relationship to, uh, to, to the Lord. I mean, he talks about his adoption to, to sonship. He, he could have used the, the word servant. He, he could have said, I'm a hooperetes. But, but he chooses the strongest term possible, a, a doulos. And all of your translations say a, a servant or on servant. And that is a really bad translation. Everybody gets it wrong. There's no such thing as a bond servant. There were slaves and there were servants, but there was nothing in between. The difference between a slave and a servant is a servant can resign and a slave can't. I mean, Paul wouldn't if he could, but, but he can't. Uh, slaves were, were the property uh, of their masters. Servants worked for their masters. Doug Moo said, Picture an auctioneer standing on a platform who, who brings a man on stage to, to auction him off and somebody bids on him and buys him. That's a, that's a doulos. Paul was owned by Christ. Uh, he wasn't just employed by, by him. He... He didn't just serve him, he, he was his property, he was rightly owned by, by him. And in our day, when, when we hear that, we, uh, we think, I'm not really sure I want to sign up for that. I mean, isn't there a nicer word than, than slave? I mean, slavery is viewed in a very negative light. I mean, when we hear the word, we think about chattel slavery. You know, somebody goes somewhere and steals people or buys people and then forces them to work for for free. Why would I want to be that? I mean, no one deserves to be owned by somebody else. That's kind of what rises up in our heart when we hear the, the word slave. And quite frankly, being a servant isn't something that, that you and I would probably strive for, for, for either. I mean, who goes to the guidance counselor, if there is such a thing anymore, in, in school and says, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to be a servant. Well, I mean, at some point, that that's, that's, was an honorable profession. It's still an honorable profession. But, but I don't know how many people like, set that as their, their goal in, in life. But, but it's not as bad as being a slave. But can I tell you something this morning? 
You are all slaves in here, every single one of you today. The difference is you either have a good master or a really bad one. God says that you're a slave to self and sin and Satan, or you're a slave to God. Your sin is a horrible master, and many of you have lived under, under its whip. But God is good and, and kind. He's worthy of your life, and He'll care for you, and He'll never do you wrong. Uh, he's the master that, that you want. You see, there's another side to this slavery that we often overlook. If you're a slave to God, He owns you. It also means that He's taken responsibility for you. When Christ purchased you, He stepped forward to pay the price, and then He took you into His household, and now you're in His care. When He purchased you, He committed to provide for you. He committed to even complete the work of salvation that He began. It puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? Can I give you another word for slave? Uh, a, a, a synonym concept? It's the title of Lord. Paul solves the whole lordship controversy right here in the second word of the book of Romans. Paul, a, a slave of Christ Jesus. And the apostles preached that Jesus was both Lord and Christ, meaning that if you're saved here this morning, He's your Lord and and you are a happy slave. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, does someone who, who doesn't want anyone trampling their own will and asserts I have rights and I have freedom and who fights strongly against the rule of God in their life, does that sound like a, a heart that's been transformed by the gospel, a, a heart that's been humbled by grace? doesn't sound like a saved heart. That's not Paul's heart. Paul says, I'm a slave to a benevolent master, and, and I'm so happy to be one. That's the first thing that I want you to know uh, about me. So whose slave are you? Are you a slave to sin? Does, does it control you? Are you a slave to death? Do you, do you, do you fear it? A slave to Satan, your flesh, or others? A slave to sex? A slave to images? A slave to alcohol, to people, money, relationships? You can trade all of that today and become a slave of the creator of the universe this morning who loves you and he gave himself for you. But you can't serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other. A, a slave is owned body, soul, and spirit. And that's evidenced by the one that he obeys, Jesus says. But Paul also says this master has, has given me a mission. Look at verse 1. Paul a slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle. So, so the second thing he says here is that he's a sent apostle. The second phrase tells the Roman believers what Paul does. He says he's a messenger. And then in verses 2 through 4, he gives the content of, that, of the message that, that he preaches. But notice he says here he's called apostle. He, he's not just a messenger. He's He's not just an apostolos, but, 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 he's, but he's called to that. He, he's an authoritative representative. The word as or to be is in italics in your, in your Bibles, which means it's supplied. It, it, it's not in the original. 
And what Paul is emphasizing here is he's not coming to the Romans based on his, on his own authority. He's, he's actually sent by someone else, and that someone else is God who actually put him into this role. You and I live in, in amazing times. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that we can complain about, and, and I do my share of it, but, but it, it's pretty amazing that whenever you and I conduct business, I mean, we can, we can zap documents back and forth on, on, on email. Or, or we can even hold a meeting by, by Zoom or, or, or something else, and you can see the other party. You, you don't need to really even fly anywhere. You're working from home now, and it wasn't that way in Paul's day. Um, a person could only be in one place at one time, and, and so if business needed to be conducted somewhere else, then you would send an apostolos. Uh, I mean, you might think of it like a proxy. Uh, you can't go to the board meeting, so you give your proxy to, uh, to somebody else. And you tell that person how you want things done, how you want, how you want the vote carried out. It was a representative that would, that would bring uh, his message and have his authority, and an apostle would go and carry out that business directed by the one he represented, and he had a delegated authority. And the emphasis here is that God is the one who called Paul to this position. He wasn't self-appointed. He, he was a personal representative of Jesus Christ, and that role was, was given to him by the Lord himself. That's unique in, in some ways. Apostles were... Uh, uh, that was a traditional, uh, a transitional gift and a, and a foundational calling. There, there, there are no apostles today, regardless of the billboards that, that you might see uh, around. Apostles were personally selected by the Lord, and, and they laid the, the foundation of the, of the church. The Ephesians 2.20 tells us, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. First came Christ and his work and... And then he handed the ball off, if you will, to the apostles and prophets, and they laid the foundation. And then evangelists and pastors and teachers come along and build on that, that foundation. And there were two requirements that are given in the Bible for, for you to become an, uh, an apostle. And, and the first one is you had to see the risen Christ, which Paul had. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talking about himself, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So you had to see the, the risen Christ before he ascended. In Paul's case, after he ascended. Second, you had to be chosen by the Lord himself. Jesus said in John 6, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and, and yet one of you is the, uh, the devil? And Paul says, both of these. That, that's me. I saw the risen Lord, and I was appointed, I was chosen for, for this specific task by, by the Lord. Paul's giving his credentials here. He, he's showing them his badge before, he, before he, he gets into the theology or answering the questions of, of this book. I mean, what would you think if somebody walked up to you, walked up to your car while you were sitting in the, the Target parking lot, maybe hypothetically, let's say your wife's in there and you've been in the car for like, I don't know, an hour and a half or so, and, and you're sitting there and somebody knocks on the window, you're, maybe you're looking at your phone and so you're not paying attention and you're, you're, you're kind of startled and, and you notice a, a man standing there and you don't recognize him, but 
you reluctantly roll the window down, and he says, driver's license, registration, and proof of insurance, please. And after you wonder, like, what in the world did I do? I'm just sitting here. You notice that he wasn't wearing a uniform. And so, sheepishly, you say, are you a police officer? And he says, well, yes. I appointed myself as a deputy sheriff last month. <laughs> You'd probably roll the window back up or, or call a real one, right? I mean, you surely wouldn't give him your personal information. You surely wouldn't invite him to, to, to talk to you. Well, did you know that there are countless people who do that in the spiritual realm? They individually decide that God has spoken to them and, and they declare themselves as, as His preacher or, or pastor without any elders or the church testing their gifts, without any training, and lots of times with lives contrary to, to the clear qualifications that the, the very Bible that they, they claim to preach presents. Paul says, that's not me. I'm not self-sent. I was called, chosen by God for this specific task. I was prepared for this task. I represent Him. I was called by Him. But that's not all. Paul also says that he is a separated instrument. His last description here. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I have a master who owns me. I'm a slave, I have a mission he has, he has given me, I'm a sent apostle, and I have a ministry for which he uses me. I am a separated instrument. I was set apart for one specific task. That's, that's the emphasis. Have you ever gotten a Leatherman tool for, for Christmas or, or seen one? I'm, I'm sure you have. It's, ama it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's like a Swiss Army knife of hand tools. It has a saw and a screwdriver and knife and pliers, a toothpick, toenail clippers, and anything else that, that you want in the middle of that. Paul says, as far as tools go, a Leatherman would not describe me. I'm more like an oil filter wrench or a, an O-ring puller. I'm more like a can opener. I have only one use. I'm only good for one thing, Paul says. That, that's all I'm good for. That, that's me. You, you can't hammer a nail with, a, with an O-ring puller. You, you can't take off a lug nut with it. You can't screw a screw. But, but try taking off an oil filter without an oil filter wrench and, and watch what happens. Or get one of those little O-rings off with, a, with your own needle nose without the special tool that, that requires it. Paul identifies himself as a separated instrument for a specific task, and, and then he tells us the type of instrument that he's used for or, or that he's given to at the, at the end of verse 1. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, I've been set apart for a specific task to, to minister the, the gospel of God, and, and in God's hands I am specifically designed to accomplish that, that purpose. What an amazing thing to be called to. And Paul says, I was set apart for that from ages past. The participle here is in perfect tense. Uh, Alva J. McLean says that Paul had three separations in, in his life. He was separated from birth. He, he says that about himself in Galatians 1, 25. He, second, he was separated from the world in Acts 9 when he's going along the road to Damascus. And then he was separated at Antioch unto God's work. Acts 13, 
while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, his Jewish name, for the work to which I have called them. Now, we're not apostles here, here this morning, but all three of these same concepts apply to you if you're a believer. If you're a believer, you, you have been purchased, you've been called, and you have been separated. You've been bought with a price, you've been called to good works, and you were set apart to, to go after them. And you won't find any fulfillment or any usefulness in your life if, if you try to go outside of that. You try to live on your own as your own master. You, you, try to do, you, you try to do other things rather than the works that God has given you. Or, or you try to apply yourself in things other than what He set you apart to do. Are you living that way? With that introduction, Paul... Uh, describes the gospel that he's a slave to. He mentions the gospel of God and then, and then he can't help himself. He, he introduces his, his message. He says it was promised by the Old Testament prophets. It's preserved, recorded in, in the Holy Scriptures, and, and it's a person. It's concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Look if you would at chapter 2. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning... His son. Now, Paul now shifts from introducing himself, who he is, to, to his message. In verse 2, he says this message was foretold, and, and it was a fulfillment. And then, and then in chapter 3 and 4, it, it's focal point. The focal point of this message, the fulcrum of this message, is God's son, who, who is a descendant of David and who is exalted as the son of God. Paul says the gospel he preached is something that was promised beforehand. That's, that's what he says here in, in verse 2, before, before the recipients of Rome, before Paul, before anyone. He, he, he places this, uh, a preposition, pro, uh, meaning before or ahead of time, with this verb promise. And, and when you think about that, that's actually a redundant concept. And he does that on purpose. I mean, a promise is something that you give ahead of time naturally. So Paul could have just said it was promised, but but he says it was promised beforehand. One word in the Greek, two in English. And Paul uses this word to emphasize the promise and then the fulfillment of the gospel. The fulfillment that, that Jesus Christ brings. And God is doing a, a new work that, that He's fulfilling that through His Son. And, and I'm called to tell you about that. But, but that work is, is from an old promise. It's a fulfillment of, a, of an old promise. A, this good news of God is the good news of old. That, that's what Paul says. It's, it's the same good news. He's not preaching a new message or a different message. It's the good news that God's always had. Don't fall into the error of thinking that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. He's not. I mean, don't be deceived that they were, they were saved by the law in the Old Testament. They're saved by grace in the New Testament. Don't, don't put too much daylight between the, the, the covenants. They're there and they stack up and they're fulfilled and, in, and applied in specific times. They're, that's called the discontinuity. But, but, but it was never changed. Uh, it's never changed of how they were applied. It, it's always been by grace through, through faith. And they've always centered on the, the, the one who was to come. His name is just now given in the New Testament. And Paul will argue that explicitly in this letter. Abraham came before, before Moses. And, 
In all of it, he says, is a fulfillment of a promise that God made, which he declared by his prophets and recorded in the scriptures. All of these wonderful prepositions. Look at verse 2 again. Which he promised beforehand, so it's old, through his prophets in the holy scriptures. What Paul means by that is the prophets of the Old Testament proclaim the gospel. Can you get saved reading the Old Testament? Yes, you can, Paul says. And notice the, the pronoun of possession here. They, he was promised beforehand through his prophets, meaning that they didn't speak on their, on their own, on their own accord. They're just like Paul. They were set apart to, to give a message then, just like Paul is set apart to give a, a message now. Tom Schreiner said, Paul clearly demonstrates the gospel constitutes the true fulfillment of what the Old Testament scriptures teach about the Mosaic law and circumcision and the role of Israel in in salvation history. And Paul says that that promise was preserved in the Holy Scriptures through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, we don't have to guess what they said. We don't need the, the Talmud and, and all kinds of other traditions to know what the prophets said and, and what they meant. We have it recorded. And that's exactly where Paul goes when he unfolds the gospel in this letter. I mean, Paul quotes the Old Testament in the book of Romans a lot. Are you ready for this? 61 times he quotes the Old Testament in the book of Romans. Somebody listed them all. Paul quotes five times from Genesis, four from Exodus, two from Leviticus, five from Deuteronomy, two from 1 Kings. He quotes the Psalms 15 times, Proverbs twice, 19 times in the book of Isaiah, Paul quotes. Ezekiel 1, Hosea 2, Joel 1, Nahum 1, Habakkuk 1, and Malachi 1. From Genesis to Malachi, Paul quotes the Old Testament. And there are many more indirect references and allusions beyond that. No, this is not a, a new promise, but an old one. But, but the difference is it's now been fulfilled in God's Son, which is what he says next. I mean, one of the questions you have to ask, though, is if this is true, if it's spoken of, the gospel is proclaimed by the holy prophets, recorded in the scriptures, where are all the Jews? Why are they not flocking into the kingdom? And that's exactly why Paul wrote chapters 9 through 11, to answer that objection and humble the Gentiles. Because this gospel has a focal point. It's not about the Jews or the Gentiles or God making a new people. It's, it's about a person, which is what he says here at the end of chapter 2, the beginning of verse 3, concerning his son. Paul says the gospel is concerning his son. It's, it's a phrase that expresses the subject matter of the gospel of God. The gospel of God. What's, who's the subject of the gospel of God? The son. Let me tell you some things about the Son in verses 3 and 4. I tried to be cute in the 8 o'clock service and just trying to emphasize this idea that, that the gospel is single focused on, on, on the Son. And I said, I'll date myself. Some of you remember the, the little ditty Oscar Mayer baloney. My baloney has a first name. And in the first service I said M-A-Y-E-R. Somebody after service said, Pastor, I don't want to correct your, your theology of baloney, but the first name of 
of baloney is O-S-C-A-R, not, not the first. Paul says, though, that's why I don't try to be cute. Paul, Paul says the gospel has one name. It's J-E-S-U-S. That, that's the gospel. You want to summarize the gospel? It's Jesus. All those people, you may disagree with their methodology of spray painting uh, all of the, the overpasses or underpasses Jesus saves, but, but that's the gospel. It's about him, and he saves. He tells us who this message is all about. The, the very heart of the promise recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures is centered on the promise of, uh, of God's Son. From the, from the garden where the seed of the woman was promised to the, to the promise of the seed of Abraham to, to David who would have a coming son sitting upon his everlasting throne, they all foreshadowed God's Son, Jesus Christ, uh, who is the very heart of the, of the redemption. And one man I read said, that might sound just elementary to you. And we know that. But he says it's necessary to state. Because most Jewish people think that the, the Old Testament or the gospel, the good news of God, is all about the law and Moses. And Christian people are preaching all kinds of, of things today, and they're calling it the gospel and it's not centered on the Son. Paul says if your message is not centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't, you don't have a gospel. I mean, the gospel is not about your fear, although if you embrace the gospel, that can be removed. The gospel is not about your anxiety, although receiving the sovereign Son of God, that can be calmed. It's not even about heaven and hell, a, a, a location or a... Or a place, even though your destiny with both of those will be forever changed if you come to the Son. The gospel is not about your finances or your health or your marriage or your forgiveness or anything else. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him, Paul says. And all the promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, they're like individual threads. and Some are thicker, some are thinner, some are different colors, and, and they all weave together a tapestry that when you stand back and look at it, it's a portrait of God's Son. He says the content of the good news, the subject matter that he preaches, his message is, is targeted on him. And maybe you've never found what you're, you're looking for because your focus has been on, on things he provides rather than finding him. You've been all around the museum admiring the paintings, longing for, for whatever it, it, it might be, but you've never met the artist. <laughs> and the artist says, come to me. He's the one that you need to meet. And so Paul says, let me introduce him to you. I can't wait to introduce him to you, he says. And then he introduces God's son in this third introduction as the humble son of David, and as the exalted, come, uh, exalted son, son of God, he has a name, it's Jesus Christ our Lord, and, and he's the one whose grace grants apostleship, or, or he gives grace and apostleship. You would verse 3. Concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God by power, by the power, with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Paul just keeps on describing the gospel. He, 
he says, his son, let me describe him to you. Let me tell you about him. And he does that with two participial clauses here. He, you probably picked them up as you went through. Who was born a descendant of David? Who was declared the son of God? Those two things are describing the, the, the son. It's not a contrast. It's not a contrast between the Lord's flesh and his divine nature. It's a contrast between his humility and his exaltation. As the offspring of David and as the reigning Lord in heaven. Paul says the, the son was humbled while he was on the earth, but he was exalted in the resurrection and after the resurrection. The focus of the, the word flesh or sarks here is, is human weakness. He, he was born a, of a descendant of David according to the, to the flesh. It's human weakness. It's contrasted with the, with the power of the resurrection. He was declared the Son of God with power by the, by the resurrection. Now, this passage is a little tricky, so uh, I think you're going to see it's very clear if you pay attention to the details. Paul says that there's a change that, that happened in the incarnation for Jesus Christ when he became from the seed of David. That's the first thing that Paul says about him. It's related to how he came the first time in his humanity. And there was a change that happened whenever he came the first time. He, he doesn't use the, the word for, uh, the normal Greek word for birth here. It, 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 he was made a descendant of David. He was not born flesh, he became flesh. It's, a, it, it's an emphasis on the incarnation. And his earthly ministry was was in the flesh, or according to the flesh. It was in weakness. It was in loneliness. That's the emphasis of Isaiah 53. He had no crown or castle. He had no place to lay his head. He was despised and rejected of, uh, of men. He humbled himself to the point of death. But Paul says there was another change that, that happened when he was raised from the dead. And then he was exalted into the position of the Son of God. That's what happened at the, at the resurrection. Look at verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. And Paul says that at that moment he was appointed as the Son of God in, in power. Now notice the change of verbs there. He was made the Son of David and he was appointed... As the Son of God. He, he was made human, he, but He was not made the Son of God. He was appointed as the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God in the resurrection. He was the Son of God. He, he was appointed to something in the resurrection. The word designated, which is what most of trans, your translations use, the uh, word doesn't mean to declare or prove something. It doesn't mean that He was proven to be the Son of God in the, in the resurrection. It, it's something beyond that. It, it's actually used in Acts 10 and Acts 17 of Jesus Christ being appointed as judge over all. He, he's appointed as judge over all. It's the same word that's used here. But it says something interesting. It says He was appointed as the Son of God by, by the resurrection. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, but it's very important because you can get into heresy if, if you mess it up. And here's how plain it is. I want you to notice that he calls him son twice. Look at verse 3. 
He talks about the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So, so he says son twice concerning his son, who was declared to be the son of God with, with power. So those details matter. He, he starts with, he is the son, the second person of the Trinity, who is the focus of Paul's gospel, and, and he's God's son. He, He's his son. But the second, he's exalted as the son of God by the power of the resurrection. So two uses of the word son. The first one is who he is. He's the eternal son of God. He never never became the second person of the Trinity. He was always the son. But the second is his position now. The fact that he's reigning in, in heaven. And the resurrection brings that change, doesn't it? If you miss the first son, you're into heresy because you're saying that he wasn't the son of God before the resurrection. But if you miss the second usage, then you miss the distinction between his humble coming of taking on human flesh and then his conquering exaltation that comes through the resurrection. It was the resurrection that gave him that position. Paul says the resurrection transitioned Jesus from the humble servant to the reigning Son of God who is the, the coming King. And that's the, the gospel that, that he preaches. So he starts here in Romans, written long before Philippians, a few years before Philippians. And Paul here is humming an original tune to a song that he actually writes in Philippians chapter 2. You, you remember Philippians chapter 2? Where God humbled himself, even though he was God. How did he humble himself? He took upon himself human flesh. He humbled himself by doing that. He humbled himself uh, uh, being obedient unto the point of death, even death on, on the cross. It's the contours of the gospel. It starts in heaven and he comes to earth and, and in earth even death, death on the cross, in the grave. But it doesn't stop there in Philippians, does it? And because of that, God highly exalted him. And then there's something that's coming even after that. In that exaltation, in the ascension, he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he remains there until he comes again. And when he comes again, he's coming as the King and he's going to reign and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the power of the resurrection. That's what Paul is tracing here. Because in the resurrection he was highly exalted at the right hand of the throne. So he has a new title, the exalted Son of God, and one day he'll be the enthroned Son of God when he comes again. Jesus coming in the flesh was a big deal. We celebrated at Christmas. Obviously, the Messiah has come. But that wasn't the end. In the resurrection, that led to his exaltation on high at the right hand of the Father. And then the final step is coming when he'll be enthroned. Overall, Paul is pointing all of that out. I'm going to preach that to you, he says. Let me introduce that to you. Let me introduce him to you right now. And he says it's, it's according to the spirit of, of holiness. Notice he adds uh, something to this second phrase. We don't have time to really go into it, but it's a genitive of holiness. It's a, I think it's a Hebrew idiom talking about the Holy Spirit. And then he names him. Just like he does in Philippians, that the, the name of, the, of Jesus, every knee will bow, in the same Son of God, it's the same Son of God who appears as the old earthly Jesus and the heavenly Christ. And then he says, let me, let me give you his name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And because he was raised, you and I will be raised. Those who are in him and have his spirit, that's what the resurrection declares. And he's given a name that is above every name. And it's a special name, isn't it? Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name than the name of Jesus. No sweeter name, no other name that we shouted throughout all eternity. The name that will be declared is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And when we're in heaven, that's what we'll be, say, we'll be saying. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're here because of Him. So Paul doesn't just say God or the Creator. He says the name. And he gave gifts whenever he ascended, didn't he? Now what Ephesians 4 said, so look at verse 5. Paul says, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, he gave gifts to men. And Paul says, I'm included in one of those gifts. Now he brings it back to the message and his appointment in verses 5 and 6. And again, we don't have a lot of time, but... This means either he either gives grace and apostleship or he has been made an apostle by divine grace. And both are true. Point is, he gives gifts. The idea here focuses on Paul's authority granted by the resurrected Son of God. Now we know who called Paul to be an apostle based on that verse. And that calling has a purpose. What else he says in verse 5? Through whom we've received grace and apostleship. Why have you been given apostleship, Paul, by, by this risen Christ? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name or for his name's sake. He, he draws out three aspects of his apostleship in these prepositional phrases. His purpose is to bring about the obedience of faith. The sphere of his labors is is the Gentiles, and his ultimate goal is for the sake of his name. His ultimate goal is for Christ's glory. That's it's always the ultimate goal of the gospel. His goal was to bring about the obedience of faith, obedience that was based on faith in Christ, faith that is in Christ. What did Jesus say to his disciples in the Great Commission? Before he gave it, he says, you know, go to, to Galilee and wait. After he rose from the dead, he appears. And when he met them, what did he say? All authority has been given unto me. I am no longer the humble servant. I am now the resurrected Christ. All authority has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples. Go with my authority, preach and teach. What's the goal about? To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring people under the word of God, proclaim my word, baptize them, teach them. And, but Paul says his specific target that God gave him was the Gentiles, the, the nations, which is, Paul, which is why what Paul is writing to, to the Romans, they're among the Gentiles. So he introduces the Romans as the, the saints of God. If you would at verse 6. He says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And, and then he just runs on into this, this praise. He says, let me introduce you to the saints of God. They're you. Here's three things about you, Romans. 
you're chosen of Christ, you're beloved of God, and you're called saints. And now he ties it, it all together and, and connects his delegated authority to them. Christ has given gifts. I am one of them, the gift of apostleship, and, and I have a specific focus on the Gentiles to bring about obedience of faith. And guess what? You're primarily Gentiles. The entire church, though, is not Gentiles. Look at verse 7. Who, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. And, and so that obviously included both Jew and Gentile, but this verse tells us the majority of the church is of Gentile origin. But he says, regardless of their ethnicity, they have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's the same word that Paul uses here for his calling to apostleship. He says, just like Paul was chosen to be an apostle, the Roman Christians have been chosen by Christ. And the word doesn't simply mean an invitation. Hey, Paul, would you like to be my apostle? Paul, make the decision to come be my apostle. That's not what he says. It's the wooing, it's the drawing, it's the powerful reach of God that, that brings people into his kingdom. Theologians call it the effectual call. He literally says they're, they're called Jesus Christ. And he says they're beloved of God. Verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Paul had a calling to go to the Gentiles, which was by divine grace. And that responsibility included the believers in Rome, and there were believers themselves because of divine grace. God called them. God called Paul. And because of that, they're God's beloved in Rome. Now, the verse that you all know very well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and He does. And I don't believe that just means a certain part of the world. I believe that that means all of the world. I believe world means world there. God loves all of the world. But did you know that God has a special or specific love for you as a believer? I mean, think about it. You love your neighbor, but you don't love your neighbor the same way that you love your child. And God has a special and specific love for his children. And Paul says here, because you are called of Christ in him, you are now the beloved of God. There is a special love that he has for you. And because they're the well-loved people of God, they're, they're called saints. Verse 6. So you have in verse 6 the sovereignty of God. They belong to Christ Jesus because of His sovereign grace. And then in verse 7 you have the outflow of human responsibility because God loves them and, and declares them saints. Then they pursue holiness and Christlikeness. But notice it doesn't say they're called to be saints as if that was some goal that they had to attain. They, they are saints. And he ends with this spontaneous worship by repeating from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Alva J. McLean said, God never goes to the sinner and tells him to try to attain sainthood. <laughs> he picks the sinner up out of the mud and says, based upon the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And now we are holy and must live in accordance with that position. And if you're in here this morning and you're a believer and you're saved, that's what God says about you. You're called of Jesus Christ. 
He has a special love for you. And you're set apart unto Him. You're set apart as a saint. And, and if He has done all of that for you, in spite of who I am and who you are, doesn't that make you want to live for Him? Doesn't that motivate you to want to share about this gospel of God who is centered on the Son, who was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament, recorded in the same Bible that, that you have? The same God who, who didn't say, stay in heaven and say, come up to me. Here are the steps where you can climb to me. He descended to you. He came to you and me where we were in the midst of this sinful world. And he humbled himself in that way, being obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. Don't you want to look to that risen Christ and exalt Him this morning in, in your heart? Don't you want to say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, that's all I am, and that as a slave He has given me specific works to do, and, and that's how I fulfill my life. I'm, I'm a special tool, only given specifically for His task. If if that's what you want, then, then you fall into these verses Paul's describing here. If you don't want that, or you find yourself this morning a slave of another master, and that master is evil, it's hard. And Jesus says to you today, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, but take my yoke upon you. Bow the knee to me as Christ in Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity that's there. I thank you for the passion that just flows, oozes out of Paul, the humility that is there. He is a man who has been transformed, not demanding his rights or his freedoms, but but declaring, I am a doulos, slave. Oh, Lord, may that be my heart. May that be the heart of everyone here. And for those who might be struggling this morning, I pray that maybe they would be reminded of the special love that God has for them now that they're in Christ. And that love surely would, would never leave them, never forsake them, and would see them through whatever it, it, it might be. And for anyone outside who has another master, I pray today that they would serve a new one, Jesus, by coming to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You stand. Let's sing glorify that name. Jesus, we love you. We worship and adore. Glorify thy name in all the earth. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name. Glorify thy name in all the Uh, don't forget to come back tonight. We won't be meeting in here. We'll be meeting in the other building, and we'll start with baptism. You'll hear three testimonies.
three men who have uh, done exactly what we preached about this morning. They, they become slaves of Christ through the gospel, and we'll share that with you, and then we'll baptize them, and then we'll break up to our, uh, our classes. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray you'd preserve us, use us, and dismiss us with your blessing. In Christ's name, amen.